0: Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Matthew, more than any other gospel writer, wants us to see Jesus as a new Moses. So in chapter 2, Jesus comes out of Egypt, and then in chapter 3, he he passes through the waters, not of the Red Sea, but of baptism. And then in chapter 4, after 40 days in the wilderness, he's tempted And like Moses, we we found out in chapter 1 that Jesus had come to save His people, to deliver His people from slavery. It's a new exodus, and this time the taskmaster is sin, not Egypt. And then here we are now, chapter 5. And just like Moses, when he received the laws, he went up to Mount Sinai, Jesus now goes up on a mountainside. And he gives his followers a new law, the promised, long awaited new covenant that will be ratified at the end of Matthew's gospel by Jesus' own blood as he gives his life for sin and sinners on the cross. And Jesus begins this new divine teaching not with a list of rules. Not with ten new commandments or amended commandments. But he begins with eight qualities that will mark the new people of God. Living in God's kingdom, under God's rule, in God's blessing. And it's not what anyone would really expect or maybe even really want. The Right Stuff, it's an old movie about the pioneers of space exploration in the United States. Maybe you've seen it. But it begins by telling the story of the test pilots in the late 1940s who were trying to break the sound barrier. And every time, which is about 750 miles an hour. And at that speed, there seemed to be this wall of air, this impenetrable wall of air that would build up right as they were about to hit that speed. And the controls would start to freeze and crack and everything would start to shake and the planes would violently either just disintegrate midair or plummet to the ground in a massive fireball. As the planes neared the sound barrier, it, it almost seemed as if the, the controls were working backwards. And so, if the pilot, you know, leaned back to kind of bring the nose of the plane up, he'd just head down in a, in a spiral into the ground. Well, in the movie, at least, I'm not sure how it was in real life. Movies have take some liberties, right? Once they figured that out, the pilot working in reverse, working against his instincts, was able to break through that barrier. Jesus has come proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of heaven. And what we come to realize early on is that this kingdom and this king are not what we were expecting down is up, and up is down. You become great by becoming the least, by becoming everybody's servant. You gain wealth by giving everything away. You love your enemies, and you do good to them. You do good to people who, who don't even like you, people who treat you maliciously. What kind of kingdom is this? You find your life in this kingdom by losing it. And if you really want to live, you've got to die first. Life in this kingdom is upside down and it runs against the grain of our human reasoning. And this spills over, this upside down nature of the kingdom, it spills over into the kind of people or the kinds of traits or attitudes that mark the people who belong to this new glorious kingdom. It's not the successful. It's not the uber competent. It's not the self reliant or the self assured. It's not the hard charger that inherits this kingdom, but it's the poor, the mournful, the meek, the hungry and thirsty, the merciful. The blessings of the king and the blessings of the kingdom rest on the kinds of things and, well, the kind of people that are often despised and rejected by the world around us. Now, each one of these eight attributes are super important. Each one reveals a different side, a different angle to what it means to live as a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. And so we're going to pack each one unpack, we could pack them. We're going to unpack each one of these attributes or attitudes over two sermons. Today we'll cover the first four. Next week we'll hit 5 through 8. But before we get into this, there are a few things I think we need to settle. First, all eight traits and the blessing that comes with each trait belong to every person who enters into the kingdom of heaven. And that may seem obvious, and yet, especially number eight, which says, blessed are the persecuted, because most of us haven't really been persecuted. We start to wonder, okay, do all of these apply at all times? And it's been a few years, but I can remember back when I was younger, people saying, I think I'm a three and a five. And I can remember somebody else saying, she's a two, four, seven for sure. But here's, here's the thing. If we look and we see that the blessing of the kingdom of heaven is both the reward of the first one the poor in spirit, and the last one, the persecuted, that bracketing, I think, shows us that the other six unique blessings, comfort, the earth, satisfaction, mercy, seeing God, sonship, all are part of the blessings that come to every believer. They're all part of what it means to inherit the kingdom of God. And I can't think of any one of those that I would want to miss out on. Can you? I mean, I, I wouldn't want to, you know, be a son of God but not see God. Be a blind son of God, I guess, is what you'd be. So, so we want to see these as all one. You get all of them. Second, these attributes or attitudes describe the kind of people that you and I should be striving to become. They, they define the Christian. They define us. And as I've studied these verses this week, it's felt odd to me that I haven't given these blessings the kind of attention they deserve in my own personal life. They are the defining characteristics that should mark the heart, the core, the DNA of our being as followers of Jesus Christ. They are the peculiarities of the people of God. We can often tell, can't we, just from listening to someone speak or some of their mannerisms, where they come from. If someone from Alabama shows up in Chicagoland, we're like, that guy's not from around here, right? And the guy from Alabama is thinking, man, I don't know how I ended up here in Chicagoland. This is a different place. Well, it may seem a bit odd, but kingdom people... People of the kingdom, followers of Jesus Christ, have their own idiosyncrasies. And looking at these traits, you realize that these aren't things that you do. These aren't tasks that you check off a list. But when you have them, they do make good works possible. And as we get into the Sermon on the Mount and the new law or the covenant that Jesus unveils we quickly see that without these attributes, we do not have a chance. We do not have a chance of being able to participate in the kingdom or enjoy the kingdom or seek the kingdom. Certainly, if we don't understand these eight attributes, we won't understand what's going on in the kingdom. Third, Jesus not only tells us what attitudes we should have, but he demonstrates perfectly what each one looks like in his life as laid out by the gospel writers. This king, and I love this, he doesn't expect something of his subjects that he himself has not done. He has shown us how a faithful Christian engages with God and with others. And as we move through the Gospel of Matthew, we should keep an eye on Jesus. Really, we should always keep an eye on Jesus, right? We should always be looking at Him as He embodies kingdom living. And then fourth, and most important, I mentioned that the Gospel of Matthew begins with a declaration that Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. And the book will end with Jesus' death and resurrection. He will die on a cross and be raised for our justification, He will be raised to free us from sin and win for us all the blessings that are being pronounced here in these beatitudes. Which I think is the fundamental assumption of the new covenant. It's the blessing of the new heart that beats to the rhythm of this new kingdom. You see, the Old Testament understanding of the new covenant, this anticipation of God doing a new thing, something dramatic for The people of God came with statements like this. I will write my law on your heart, Jeremiah. So that you will obey God instinctively. Or Ezekiel, where he tells us that God is going to basically do surgery on you and rip out your heart of stone, which doesn't seem to want to respond to God. And he's going to put a new one in there that does respond. A transplant. By grace, all of these attributes are accredited to every believer's account. God has blessed us, Paul wrote in Ephesians 1, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Why? Because we are united with Jesus by faith. And by grace, all of these attributes, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes here, will ultimately be evidenced in our hearts and in our minds and and in our lives through the sanctifying work of God's Holy Spirit. Partially in this life, though hopefully increasing, right? As we move along, as we age, as we mature as believers. But then finally and fully when Jesus returns To establish his kingdom in all its glory and power. So keep those four things in mind as we turn to the opening lines of the Sermon on the Mount. And the first thing out of Jesus' mouth confirms an obvious but challenging truth. The kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to understand that we do not have the resources to save ourselves. For starters, So that's the beginning. We don't have the resources to save ourselves, but we also don't have the resources to live out the demands of the kingdom. We can't do it. So once we're saved by grace, we can't then go on in the power of the flesh. It's a declaration, this poor in spirit, of complete spiritual bankruptcy. John Calvin wrote, he only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor spirit. I can remember watching like old Disney films and some of the old underwater diving scenes where the guys had this big kind of round helmet with the, you know, the round glass piece there. And there was an oxygen line that ran from the ship up on the surface of the water down to the diver. And as long as the diver stayed connected to that line, he could well he could breathe, which was helpful, right? But he could work, he could walk around, he could discover things. But without that line, not only could he not do anything, but his life was at risk. The same is true of you and me. And we need to regularly remind ourselves that apart from Christ and our connection to Him, we can't do anything, not one thing. We are completely dependent on God for everything. And it makes sense to me as Jesus begins the great teaching on the kingdom that He would start by telling us that we do not have the resources. We do not have the power. We do not have the ability in ourselves to carry out the demands of the kingdom. We cannot do it on our own. Not going to happen. And if we understand that we're poor in spirit, we will rely on him and not ourselves. What would it look like if we truly believed that we were poor in spirit? If we understood our inability to please God apart from Christ, it's a good question to ask. I think the first thing that would come to mind is that we would try and figure out how to keep that oxygen line connected, right? I mean, we'd be trying to figure out how to keep the air flowing, because we don't want that to stop, because we're underwater in a sense. We, it's... We'd be trying to figure out everything we would would need to do to keep connected with Jesus. And I think that's what the other attributes begin to speak to. How we are to think about God. How we are to think about ourselves. And how we're to think about others so that we put ourselves in the position to receive grace and empowerment so that we glorify God with our lives and our living Emma Lazarus wrote a poem in 1883 to raise money for the the foundation, the pedestal that the Statue of Liberty sits on. A plaque bearing the text of the poem was put on the inner wall of the pedestal in 1903. And there's one particular very, very famous stanza that could just as easily have been written about the kingdom of heaven or even possibly spoken by Jesus himself. To describe the kinds of people that God was inviting into the kingdom. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp. Cries with, she cries with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. That's that's how Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. Give me the worst of the worst. Give me the poor. Give me the wretched. Give me all the losers you can find and send them to me. I want to build a kingdom out of them. A glorious kingdom out of them. Now, of course, in saying that, you begin to realize that in calling yourself a Christian, right? (laughs) You're making some certain claims about being a loser or, you know, the the teeming shore, these homeless, tempest-tossed, wretched refuse, right? I mean, that's what we're saying. You're identifying with this poverty of spirit. And Jesus continues then as we move into the second blessing with a similarly puzzling statement when he says, Blessed are are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. The word blessed or blessed that is used in the Beatitudes is sometimes translated happy. And so what we have here we might be read, happy are the unhappy, which makes absolutely no sense, right? I mean, and especially it makes no sense in a culture like ours that has elevated happiness to one of our inalienable self-evident rights, right? But if we remember that this kingdom operates a lot different than the kingdoms of this world, I think there's a way that we can make this happy or unhappy work. Jesus is not talking about sadness. He's not talking about the sadness we experience when someone we love dies. This is not bereavement. He's talking about spiritual mourning. And we might begin by defining spiritual mourning as a personal grief over personal sin and the pain it causes God and those around us, others. Now, this doesn't mean that we must live in constant grief over our sin, like we're carrying a big weight around. But I believe that if we allow the weight of our sin to sit on us. If we consider sin's ugliness, we will not only be more amazed at God's grace, but we will become more and more repulsed by sin. And I believe that we will find its grip loosening. I mean, this idea of mourning I think gives us a better feel of what repentance might look like. Don't we usually want something quick and easy? Let's assume you and your wife have a spat. Isn't it common for us to say, okay, I'm sorry, let's move on, you know? Some people move on. Others have a little struggle moving on. And some of you in marriages like that, where, okay, it's not that easy. But we want quick and easy when it comes to repenting but if you have ever grieved over the loss of a loved one, you know, that's not the way it works, right? You don't just say, oh, my dad died. That was yesterday, today I'm moving on. No, not at all. Matter of fact, my dad died a year and a half ago and there's still moments, a moment just yesterday where it's like, oh, a sudden ache, a sudden hole, a sudden longing to be with him. Oh my. Grieving takes time. Mourning takes time. And given time, I think, in regard to sin, the comfort promised often comes in the form of real change. In real growth in godliness. Look, we live in a fallen world. There are going to be struggles. And this life is not going to be one big long party. We know that, but when it comes to dealing with sin, we tend to want to just say, hey, let's move on. Let's get going. God forgives, and He does. But He wants us to mourn over sin. We want to see how bad it is so that He can bring healing and comfort and change. But this spiritual mourning... May also be defined a little broader as a corporate grief over the sin of this world and all the pain and suffering that results from sin in the world. And I say this is a little more challenging, and I feel like in some ways this is out of my capacity to even understand, but I feel it in the scripture because God is coming to introduce a new kingdom, and it's not an isolated kingdom. We'll see in verses, what, 13 and 14 that he wants us to be like a light on a hill and invite everybody into the kingdom. And so there is a mourning that should take place as we look at the world around us and see all the pain and suffering. Now with 24-7 news and more, there's always something we're aware of. Always heartache. And in this case, we... He's not calling us to play God. He's not calling us to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. But we also must weep with those who weep. We must mourn with those who mourn. In Matthew 23, Jesus has been just laying into the Pharisees. Woe after woe, pronouncement of judgment after pronouncement of judgment. And when he gets done, he doesn't go. Fine. He weeps over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I wanted to gather you in like a mother hen, but you wouldn't let me. You see this even in God. He weeps over what sin has done to his world. Now I think in regard to the world, we're probably called to do more weeping than we are called to do judging. In Psalm 119.36, David writes, My eyes shed streams of tears. Why? Because people do not keep your law. I think as we learn to mourn our sin and the sins of the world at large, we will experience as individuals and in our communities glimpses of the comfort of God right now. I think we'll begin to feel and sense the comfort of God in the situations we're at. It won't be complete. It won't be whole. But it will be true comfort. And that comfort will give us hope for that final, complete comfort that is to come. And in the corporate setting, and I'm meaning in the church and then outside the walls of the church, I think God is wanting to use us As conduits for God's comfort to people. Even for unbelievers. God is wanting to use us as comfort. So again, let me ask, what might it look like for you to mourn over sin? What might happen if you let the weight of your sin settle on you for a day or two? If you meditated on the, the wickedness of sin, the evilness of sin. What if you sought to enter into the pain your sin caused? How might God use that to change you? I know for me, with all the things that have been going on about sexual exploitation and just the way men have abused power, well, I've never been even close to that. I've been meditating on it to drive deeper and deeper into my heart the hideousness of sexual sin thinking about how bad even one glance is. And that's the way we need to do this. And it's been good for my soul. It's been helpful. It's been healing. How might God want to change you through letting that weight sit for a moment or two? Well, I think right away Jesus tells us how it would change us when he says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Meekness here in the Beatitude has been defined as a humble and gentle attitude toward God first and then toward others. Based on a true estimation or understanding of who we are, of of our worth, our value. This meekness, you see, flows very naturally out of the poverty of spirit and mourning over sin that precedes it. And I think as we, as we go along through the Beatitudes, there's going to be a snowball effect to this list where each one kind of just rolls naturally into the other and it starts getting bigger and bigger. It's hard to be proud and arrogant or defensive, isn't it? If you understand that you are you know, poor, like destitute, and that you're mourning over your sin, I think it's helpful to consider the blessing that the meek receive here. It's the earth. Now, I know that this is presumably a quote from Psalm 37 where David says the uh, meek will inherit the land and it speaks about the promised land. So, whether it's the earth or the promised land... This is awesome, right? I mean, this is what every dictator dreams of. Inheriting the earth, you know what I mean? How much more territory can I take over? Jesus is reshaping, isn't he? Our understanding of power and might and what wins in his kingdom. It's not what usually works, right? He shows us what true strength is at least in the kingdom of heaven, and he turns it upside down. I think the challenge here for us is that we, we don't see meekness or gentleness as something God desires of every one of us. And here we find it in a list of defining characteristics, right? It's not like, okay, you're not so gentle, you're not so meek, that's okay, just try and get a couple of other ones going pretty well or something here now not at all jesus is making it clear that we are all to put the interests of others ahead of our own we're all called to walk in humility and love more importantly we're all called to walk humbly before our god and because of that it's no surprise That no one exemplifies this meekness, this humility more than Jesus Christ. He's going to conquer sin and death and the devil, and he's going to redeem and restore the entire cosmos. Pretty big. And you know how he's going to do it? He's going to die, he's going to take on the form of a man. Humble himself, even to obedience to death on a cross. That's how he conquers the world. I mean, think about his trial, right? Are you going to say anything? Defend yourself. I have nothing to say. No, No remarks. Now, most of us would... We'd have to admit in that kind of situation that we're hardwired to stand up for our rights, right? I mean, we can't let this happen. This is an injustice. We're eager to protect our reputation, slow to risk our reputation when it comes to God or His church. Now, of course, you've heard this. Meekness is not weakness, Clearly. Meek people have a right understanding of their own failures, a right estimation of who they are, a right understanding of where the power comes to live the Christian life. And because of that, they're actually really strong and able to stand up for what is right and what is true. And this willingness to defend God's honor at personal cost takes us to the fourth blessing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Again, you see the flow. Understanding our spiritual poverty, we mourn over our sin and the pain that the world is feeling because of that sin. And from that, we begin to rightly assess who we are. And it it humbles us before God. It humbles us before others. And so we walk with God and we we walk with others with a right assessment of who we are. But it's not enough for us simply to say, oh, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. It's not enough to say, yeah, I'm the poor. I'm the mournful. I'm the meek. It's not enough if the kingdom coming means that God's rule will be established on the earth, if it means that God's way of doing things will now take place among those who have entered into the kingdom, then it means to seek the kingdom, as it says in Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Kingdom and righteousness, they they go hand in hand. Now, so our goal is not merely confession of sin, right? It's growth and godliness. It's change. We want to live upright and godly lives, as Paul speaks about in Titus. And we want to do it in the present age. But is that even possible, right? I mean, Jesus says in Matthew 5.20... He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You're not getting in. How is that possible, right? I mean, those guys were beasts. If anybody was striving after righteousness, they seemed to be going after it. And because of that, we might be tempted to see the righteousness that Matthew speaks of here more in the way that Paul uses it. To describe the righteousness, an alien righteousness that comes to us by faith from Christ. The righteousness of God. A righteousness that is accredited to our account, as we mentioned earlier. But the consensus among scholars that I'm reading is that Matthew uses righteousness here And elsewhere in this gospel, very differently than Paul, he uses it to describe a pattern of life lived in conformity to the will of God. So what gives? Well, ultimately, it is a righteousness from God. I mean, that is the promised blessing, right? If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, what what is he going to do? He's going to fill you. With what? Righteousness. Not hamburgers, right? He's not, he's not going to fill you with something else. This isn't seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you and you're seeking the kingdom and righteousness because you really want all the other things, whatever they may be. And often we define those ourselves, right? No, it's seek the kingdom and righteousness and you'll get that kingdom and you'll get that righteousness and nothing could be more glorious than that. Those who hunger and thirst will be satisfied. But Here's the thing. God is the one who changes hearts, right? I mean, that's what the new covenant is all about. It's all about God doing something different. It's about Him giving us hunger and thirst. It's about Him changing our hearts so we want different things which is difficult because sometimes we find ourselves in a place where that's just not where we're at. We find ourselves in a place where the things of this world begin to curb or even eliminate our appetite for God and His righteousness. What if you find yourself in a place where you're not really hungry? What if you feel somewhat satisfied not having the righteousness of God? Well, here's the thing. You go back to number one and start all over, right? I mean, I feel like number one just is kind of like my go-to, right? Because when I don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, I realize how poor and bankrupt I am. And so I return to number one and say, oh, I'm exactly the kind of person that you take and change and mold into your image. I'm exactly that guy. And I come back and I fall on the mercy of God. And I, he infuses me. He gives me hunger and desire. He is committed to seeing his people change. This is God's program from start to finish. He who began a good work in you is going to see it through to the end. And so when I stop thirsting, when I stop hungering for righteousness, okay, back to number one, start over. Meditate on, think about, pray about it, what it means to be spiritually bankrupt. To have nothing of value to bring. To be totally without hope, without God. And I feel like this theme comes through in a number of places in Matthew, and I'm going to close with this verse. Because some of you may be feeling, I'm not there. I've just come through a stretch over the last, I'd say, three or four months where I just have had very little hunger and very little thirst And I can hear Jesus saying this to me and to you this morning. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for welcoming us into your kingdom. We thank you that you did not turn us away. That you didn't set a bar that we couldn't meet. The bar was so low that we we came in with ease. You have provided all that we need to inherit the kingdom. So Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us. That you would send your Holy Spirit to encourage us and to confirm in our hearts that we belong to you. Lord, would you send hunger and thirst, and would you then satisfy us with righteousness, with fruits of the Spirit? Would you move in our marriages? Would you move in our communities? Would you move in our lives, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen.